As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Hello, Worldos. Worldos. Another Tuesday, another series of breaking news alerts that are landing in our inboxes in the hours before we record. We have a long, fascinating interview with Ambassador Susan Rice later in the show. We talked about her book, Tough Love, and lots of great stories from her time in government, with a particular focus on Africa, since she handled Africa policy on Bill Clinton's NSC and Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. So don't miss that because it's a really interesting window into that period of time and, and Africa poly- policy generally. We also talked a lot about Syria with Susan, so we'll do a little less of that uh, in the news section of the pod today and try to cover more topics generally. But here's what we got on the rundown. Uh, the latest blockbuster impeachment news, some major updates out of Turkey and Syria that have occurred over the last few hours and days, breaking news on Brexit, uh, a breakdown of Canada's election last night, the latest on Israel's government formation process, uh, an interesting story on the treatment of U.S. diplomats in China, Facebook's handling of disinformation campaigns, protests in Haiti and Lebanon, and then some news out of uh, Afghanistan and some really incredible reporting about 19 years of war there. So packed show, but we're going to cover a lot of non-Trump ground. So uh, stick with us. Let's go world us. Real quick before we dig in, I want to make sure you guys all heard that Crooked Media is launching a brand new daily news podcast called What a Day. Starting on Monday, October 28th, you can find a podcast that will break down the biggest news of the day in 15 minutes or less. Our hosts are Akilah Hughes and Gideon Resnick. They are smart and funny, and they talk like human beings, not talking points robots on cable news. So check out the trailer, subscribe to What a Day, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's start with impeachment because this literally just happened. So... The acting ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, testified today in the impeachment hearing, and President Trump is in deep, deep trouble. Yeah. Uh, so impeachment watchers may know at issue has been the question of whether military assistance to Ukraine had been withheld as part of a quid pro quo for dirt on Joe Biden or some information about, you know, this crazy allegation that Ukraine somehow co- mm. you know intervened in our election in yeah. 2016. <laughs> it's truly nuts. Um, so Bill Taylor is the official who we all know texted that he thought it was crazy to withhold security assistance for help in a political campaign. Clearly, he was laying down a record uh, of his opposition to these dumb policy ideas. So in his testimony today, Taylor said that he was told by Gordon Sondland, who we've talked about before, he's the Trump stooge who bought his job as U.S. ambassador to the EU with a $1 million donation to the Trump inauguration. So Sondland told Taylor that he was told by Trump that Trump wanted Zelensky to state publicly that Ukraine would investigate Burisma and the allegations that they interfered in the 16 election. Uh, in fact, Sondland told Taylor that initially he thought that the quid pro quo was just about a White House meeting, but in fact, it was broader than that. The whole, the assistance that everything was contingent on getting this dirt and, you know, from the man himself, from the president of the United yeah. States directing this quid pro quo. So again, Bill Taylor's not a Trump loyalist. He got this job after the previous ambassador was removed uh, by a smear campaign by Rudy Giuliani and others. But like, I just, what more direct evidence 
do Republicans need? Yeah, and this guy is the acting ambassador, right? So this mm-hmm. is not just uh, some flunky. Um, I mean, here you have, you know, when you look at this, you know, we cross paths with Bill Terrell. Like this guy's central casting foreign service officer. Can I read some resume bullets? Yeah. Served his country for 50 years, 5-0, went to West Point, served in the 101st Airborne Division in Vietnam. Then he served, uh, I believe, at the State Department in Afghanistan, Iraq, Jerusalem, and was tapped by George Bush to be ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009. Yeah. And, I mean, then he— Big lib. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so this is what happens, right, when you have a career professional dropped into the middle of— of a sea of corruption, right? Because Bill Taylor is going there to do the normal job of how do we support this new government in Ukraine that is dealing with the fact that Russia has invaded it. And he's got like this hack, Sondland, who's seeking to enlist him in this weird scheme where they're cutting out, I mean, also in the testimonies that they were cutting out kind of the normal interagency process, which mm-hmm. we've talked about on the show. Clearly, Sondland wanted to limit the number of officials who were aware of what the scheme was. Yep. And then it couldn't be clear, right? Like, even though Sondland wrote in his text, like, there is no quid pro quo. We have an assessment that Taylor was told, like, they need to make a public statement about their commitment to investigate Hunter Biden's company in exchange for military assistance. Yeah. It's kind of the definition of a quid pro quo. You can't right? say I didn't commit a crime. I just killed a guy. Yeah. I mean, the, and, and, and in fact, Sondland even walks him through and says, hey, Trump's a businessman. And if he's going to give somebody a check, he needs to get. I mean, it's literally <laughs> like we're going to drive the, the car with the body in the trunk, like into the alleyway. And unless we get the money first, we're not. I mean, this is literally the definition of a crime. You, you, it's black and white. This is not like shades of gray here. Like you have an incredibly credible witness who is apolitical, who's a career guy, who, by the way, is showing a ton of guts to testify. He's yeah, still in time. the Foreign Service, right? So credit to this guy. He didn't write an anonymous op-ed for The New York Times. He testified in front of Congress that what we all can see we thought happened, right? That there was a quid pro quo. We withheld military assistance from another country to pressure that country, to blackmail that country into investigating Trump's political opponents. This guy's telling us, yes, that's exactly what happened. I have the receipts. Uh, I also noticed that the the reports are he took detailed notes. Mm -hmm. uh, And so his testimony is informed by detailed notes. That's very common. Diplomats write everything down, right? And, And so like Sondland, Trump were kind of counting on there being either foreign service officers who would be bullied into going along with their scheme or wouldn't want to stand up uh, against this kind of criminal activity. It points to the importance of this impeachment inquiry to begin with, because we wouldn't know about this if we weren't doing this. But I mean, this is about as open and shut a case as, you know, you get. I mean, (laughs) if you're Adam Schiff and you're a former prosecutor, like, here's your star witness, and that's it. End of the case. Yeah, I mean, Bill Taylor knew some weird shit was going down. He's a pro. He took a bunch of notes. His opening statement is 15 pages, single-spaced. Highly recommend uh, you all read it. But uh, we'll probably talk about this more next week. But, wow, blockbuster stuff. I just don't know how they can't explain this. And, you know, the, yeah. they'll try to attack Bill Taylor, I'm sure, as, like, yeah, a deep state that. operative or something. But, no, this guy's a professional who served in the 101st Airborne in Vietnam. Yeah, no, like, not going to happen. Um, all right, we're going to talk about... A bit about Syria at the top because we get it, we get into more detail with Susan, but there were some a bunch of news stories since Friday when we sat down with her. So 
couple updates. Um, first, President Erdogan of Turkey is in Russia right now meeting with Vladimir Putin. They announced that Russia and Turkish troops will jointly control the area in northeast Syria that until recently was held by the Kurds and the U.S. So we just handed that territory over to Putin, basically. Uh, Erdogan, incredibly, is still scheduled to visit Washington in November. So we'll see how that visit goes down. I can't imagine that's going to go forward. Uh, I'm, I mean, with I, I'm with you. How can he do that? I mean, the last time he was there, his goons beat the shit out of a bunch of yeah. American Protesters. Yeah, just be wild. So the second, like, completely depressing thing, Bashar al-Assad traveled to Idlib province in northwest Syria for the first time in years since his goons lost control of it to rebel fighters. Um, he, too, is reveling in his good luck after this withdrawal. Uh, then there are reports that Trump is considering leaving several hundred troops in Syria after all. So I guess our policy was not to end the war, but to let our allies get routed, hand the territory over to our adversaries, and then decide what we're actually going to do. Um, Trump keeps saying that our goal is to control Syrian oil fields, which nicely confirms the world's worst fears about U.S. foreign policy goals yeah. over the last couple of decades. Uh, at a cabinet meeting yesterday, Trump ranted about Syria for a while. Here's some choice quotes. Uh, ISIS was all over the place. It was me who captured them. I'm the one who did the capturing. I'm the one who knows more about it than you people or the fake pundits. That's one quote. Another, really? we never gave a commitment to the Kurds. That's another. Another, uh, I'm trying to get out of wars. We may have to get in wars too. That I think sort of encapsulates yeah. the incoherence here. So the words, the policy, they're incoherent, Ben. The Pentagon said that the 1,000 U.S. troops leaving Syria would go to Iraq and fight ISIS there. Today, the Iraqi military said that U.S. forces don't have permission to stay. So another big question up in the air. I mean, it's just, Ben, it's amazing to watch this unravel so fast. It's just a fucking train wreck. And I mean, I just highlight a couple of things. Susan does get in this. But first, they the extent to which there was just, this was a part of no plan is very evident here in the mm -hmm. sense that the Pentagon's clearly been making this up on the fly. Like Trump, there was no process. It was like, how do we withdraw troops from Syria? It's just Trump says he's going to do it. Kurds are going to get massacred. There's going to be an ethnic cleansing potentially carried out by Russia and Turkey. And they're just literally like, it's like these troops are in their convoy just trying to figure out where to drive. Right, yeah. And you saw images yesterday of Kurds begging them not to leave, uh, throwing tomatoes, holding up signs. I've never seen that happen to American troops anywhere. Then you get the troops like to pull up to the Iraqi border and the Iraqi government's like, actually, you're not welcome here. This is this is profoundly fucked up. I mean, <laughs> that they that they just no thought was given into what to do with these U.S. special forces who are there, right? So that's the first thing is just how chaotic this is. The second thing is what complete and utter BS it is that this is somehow part of an effort to end wars. Like Trump just took them from Syria and moved them to Iraq. Like these, these people are not coming home. No war ended because of what Trump is doing. Mm -hmm. no, no risk was mitigated for U.S. forces. At the same time that he's just moving them from Syria to Iraq, yesterday Pompeo threatened that we might go to war with Turkey for doing what Trump told them they could do. Regularly threatened to go to war with Iran. Trump did that again uh, yesterday. We've got thousands more troops in the Middle East because he's moved into Saudi Arabia and positioned all these other troops uh, in the region. So that, too, is a total lie and a total mm -hmm. false justification. And then you have this jarring New York Times story that says that this is the best thing that's happened to ISIS in four years and that you've got thousands potentially of prisoners who've gone free. There have been attacks already carried out. This is complete and utter chaos. And I would say, like, I would like to see, I mean, look, 
we can't help but the fact that we're entering a political season here. The Democrats, I'd like to see them making this case a little bit more robustly. Like, I mean, we've just had in the last week all this evidence of a complete catastrophic foreign policy decision by the president of the United States. We've got headlines that say this is the biggest victory for ISIS in years. You've got Bill McRaven, the guy who actually led the effort to kill bin Laden, writing an op-ed saying Trump is a threat to the republic. Like, we should be... I have to say, in the political context, prosecuting this case against Trump, because this is the kind of thing that even Trump voters, I think, can understand is a horrific mess of his own creation. Yeah, he, he's weak. He's ineffective. He doesn't know how to do the job. Just to put some meat on the bones of two things you mentioned. So that New York Times piece on ISIS benefiting from our, our pullout, uh, they noted that U.S. and Kurdish troops have been conducting up to a dozen counterterrorism missions per day against ISIS. Those are now down to zero. Uh, we were also collecting a bunch of intelligence from those Kurdish fighters that's not coming anymore. A recent Pentagon report said that there are up to 18,000 ISIS members in Iraq and Syria, including 3,000 foreign fighters. So it's a real problem. And then just on this this Pompeo comment. So Pompeo's doing an interview on CNBC. It's pre-taped. He says that President Trump is prepared to take military action against Turkey if needed. Uh, he doesn't say what would trigger military action. But Trump, he's talking about a NATO ally. We have a base with like 5,000 Air Force men and women on it in Turkey with up to 50 nuclear weapons. What the fuck is he talking about? If you want a window into just how dangerously incoherent and incompetent these people are, Trump went out the other day after this quote-unquote ceasefire was reached and said this was a great victory and this is a great thing for the U.S. and Turkey. And then you've got the Secretary of State for Trump threatening to go to war with Turkey, to go to war with a country that has U.S. nuclear weapons on its soil. Like, Our weapons. This is dangerous stuff. A NATO ally. Like, th- th- this, Would that trigger Article 5? Would we have to then attack I, I, ourselves yeah. if we attacked Turkey? I mean, it's just the, the, the height of uh, these people. What is so scary about this is they don't know what they're doing, and yeah. they're making it up as they go along, right? Yeah. And yeah. so Trump, for reasons that no one will ever really understand, makes this concession to Erdogan, sets in motion this crazy chain of events that just obviously benefits all the worst people in the world, Putin, Assad, ISIS, Iran. Mm -hmm. And it's like each day they wake up and decide what their new spin on it is. And one day it's that we actually have this historic breakthrough with the Turks. They're not saying that anymore. Now they're threatening war with the Turks. Who knows where we'll be tomorrow? But there are real consequences. Like people right now, as we're taping this podcast, are likely being attacked, killed. ISIS fighters are literally escaping. That's happening now in the real world while these guys just try to figure out like what the hell the spin is based on whatever crazy rant Trump did at a cabinet meeting. Yeah, it is awful. Okay, let's talk about a different uh, crop of incompetent people making it up as they go along. So in the least surprising news possible, uh, the Brexit deadline has been delayed. Uh, Last week, Prime Minister Boris Johnson managed to negotiate a Brexit deal with the European Union, but that deal was quickly shot down by British Parliament. So Johnson had to do the thing he said he would never do, which was ask the EU for another uh, extension, another delay in that deadline. So he did it as petulantly as possible. I think he attached like several letters uh, complaining that he didn't want to delay and that Parliament had forced his hand. But I mean, I I guess... We're just back to hurry up and wait on Brexit. I, I, it's This one's been evolving quickly as well, and it's hard to even know where we are. Yeah, I mean, so uh, Johnson negotiates this deal. It's pretty similar to the one that Theresa May had. 
this Irish backstop that, that we've talked about here, which is basically like how do they leave the European Union without creating a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, that was a key issue. Uh, Boris Johnson got some adjustments to that, but there still is this kind of layer of additional checks and this separation between uh, the EU in Ireland and Northern Ireland and, and, and where these checks take place and how long they'll last. It's complicated. We don't need to, for the purpose of this podcast, go into the weeds. I think mm-hmm. that proves the point, though, that an incredibly complicated piece of business, like how do you untangle the United Kingdom from the European Union, Boris Johnson wanted them to basically have like three days to like digest this deal and vote on it. That that's crazy, you know. Like this is going to determine the nature of British society, economy, their association with their key partner in Europe, and the idea that he could just kind of ram this down Parliament's throats clearly was going to be rejected. Now I think the question becomes, you know, Johnson may want to have a general election to say, okay, I have this deal, let's vote on it, vote for me if you want Brexit, and make that kind of a proxy for this whole thing, or you know, and and that's probably the most likely scenario. I do think, though, it raises this question that every time a deal has been put before Parliament, nobody's really wanted to, to vote for it mm-hmm. because bad things will happen and nobody wants to vote for things that have bad consequences. And, and it, it does just raise this question again, of can they have enough support in the Parliament and kind of in the country to leave on a deal that hasn't been put forward to another vote by the British people? And... Uh, again, like people like front of the pod, David Lammy, been very clear that like, look, it, it, when we voted for Brexit, we didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. We just it was Brexit. There was nobody knew what the terms were. There should be another vote on this. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I still think that that might not be a likely scenario. But what we're seeing is how hard it is to take this formal step of leaving when there are all these complexities around what that means if people don't have time to digest it and truly understand what what is in play here. And and I don't think Boris Johnson <laughs> entirely understands what's in play. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, let's talk about our neighbors in the north in Canada. Uh, so Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will serve another term. Uh, his political standing is undoubtedly weakened, though. He will now lead a minority government and will need to cut a deal with other parties uh, to get things done. But he still won yesterday's election, Tuesday's election. Uh, Ben, I doubt this was the campaign that Trudeau wanted to run. He was dealing with controversies that include several instances of wearing blackface to parties in the early 2000s and allegations of corruption. And ultimately, the race itself was pretty negative. But can you explain what it means to lead a minority government in Canada and how, how Trudeau pulled this thing out and what you think happens next? Yeah. So, you know, for full disclosure, I know in like Justin Trudeau and some of his senior people, um, obviously, like everybody was horrified by those images of him in blackface. Frankly, I think what they speak to is, and he himself said this, like the extent to which he was indulging in a privileged and kind of tone deaf life for a long time. Like Trudeau is one of these guys who cleaned up his act fairly late in life, kind of after his father died and, and went into politics. And he should have to own that and be held accountable for it. And I'd like to see him talk more about it because it was so jarring to see this guy who's kind of emerged as a progressive standard bearer in the world doing that. At the same time, if you're progressive, this is a really good outcome because, you know, there was a very conservative person on the other side of this election who was going to really roll back any effort to deal with climate change, who was not going to be as welcoming to refugees. So if you care about progressive policies, like we need progressives to win elections. So I think it's a good thing that Trudeau prevailed. 
Tommy, interestingly, he prevailed on a playbook that was very similar to our 2012. Yeah, um, I felt that way. I mean, and I actually even remember talking to them about this, but like, because they looked at our election and, you know, he had a good record to run on, but what he did is he kind of grinded it out. I'm the one, this kind of mix of, I'm the one working for the middle class and these guys are going to cut things that are important to you, coupled with I'm the one who will fight climate change, which appeals to progressive voters. Mm-hmm. Even his slogan, like, forward, was literally the exact same slogan as Obama's in 2012. So I think they saw that election of how do you kind of grind it out in a, in a difficult circumstance. What's interesting now is he didn't get a, a clear majority. So it's a parliamentary system. If you have a clear majority, your party runs things, you run the parliament. If you don't, then you have to make coalitions. And you either have to make a formal coalition with another party that gets you in a majority, or you can kind of make coalitions on an ad hoc basis on different votes. Trudeau has a couple of options. There's this Quebec party. You know, Quebec has long had kind of a bit of a separatist movement or uh, certainly a desire for autonomy within Canada. Or there's parties to Trudeau's left that got enough votes. The NDP uh, is a party to his left that if he partnered with them, they'd have a majority too. What does that mean? Interestingly, I think it means that you're going to have a more progressive Canadian government because to get to a majority, the most obvious path for Trudeau is to work with parties to his left. And so it might mean actually more of a focus on things like climate change, because one of the things Trudeau uh, took crap for from the left is that even though he's fought climate change, he's agreed to a new pipeline over right, there. Right. So uh, it bears watching. But, but I think the net result is one of the few progressives in power in a major country in the world. One, that's a good thing. And he's been somewhat humbled uh, by his own actions. And the outcome of that, it may actually be that he's dependent on people to the left of mm-hmm. the Canadian liberals. So you may actually even see a more progressive government, even if it's somewhat weaker than the mandate he had last time. Yeah. And just one more thing on this Trudeau victory is, you know, actually very rare. Barack Obama uh, endorsed Trudeau on Twitter a few days before the election. That's only the second endorsement he's made like this in a foreign election since he left office. Uh, Emmanuel Macron was the other. So he's he's two for two. But I mean, I think it speaks to the fact that Obama both likes Trudeau, uh, thinks he's a good guy, but also just thinks it's really important that in, in some of these critical countries, that we see progressives get over the goal line. So, you know, I think people should note the extraordinary nature of Obama weighing in like this, and it seemed to have a positive impact. Hmm. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. 
In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. All right, let's talk about another election over in Israel. So Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu officially gave up trying to form a government on Monday. So that means his chief opponent in last month's election, Benny Gantz, will now give it a go. There's probably some people listening who are very confused about how we're still talking about the Israeli elections because they happened a while ago. You are right. In fact, there was another election before the September election in April. Both of those elections ended with Netanyahu and Benny Gantz essentially tying. And the way the Israeli system works is to become prime minister, you have to form a coalition uh, that controls 61 of the 120 seats in the Knesset, their parliament. So Netanyahu got first crack at that coalition formation process. He failed. Now, former Israeli army chief Benny Gantz has 28 days to try. And if he can't do it, we may see them talk about some sort of power sharing agreement or maybe even a third election, which was is crazy. But Netanyahu is facing potential indictments in three different corruption cases. So for him, this is not just about being in charge. It's about preserving his immunity from prosecution. Uh, and so far, uh, Bibi's legal problems have made a coalition government a non-starter for his opponent, Benny Gantz. So, Ben, it just feels like... Like Brexit, this one is more uh, hurry up and wait, I guess. Yeah. You know, the problem is that nobody has an obvious pathway to a a coalition that could form a majority, Um, in part because one of the key players, Avidor Lieberman, is kind of held back as support from anybody. Um, Here's, I guess, what people should know. Um, Gantz has said that he will not go into a unity government, right? Because one of the ways you could solve this is Netanyahu gets two years as prime minister and then right, Gantz gets right. two years. That sounds weird to us, but that is something that is done in the Israeli system. But Gantz has said he won't serve under a prime minister who is under indictment, you know, and Bibi is likely, you know, is under indictment. And and so that's 
Bibi's desire to have a government that protects him from prosecution has clashed with Gantz rightly saying, well, I'm not going to do that, right? And so there are a couple of different outcomes that could happen here. One is that Gantz somehow can corral a coalition and become the next prime minister. Um, and I think that'd be a very good outcome. Another is that there's a third election, which I don't think anybody really wants to live through. Nope. It's pretty clear what the dividing lines are in Israeli society and Israeli politics. And another is there's just some kind of brokered thing where they take turns being prime minister. Um, and that will get tied up with this question of what happens if Bibi is you know, prosecuted while he's prime minister. Bottom line, though, is that like we are either at the end or the beginning of the end of the Bibi Netanyahu era in Israeli politics. There is no question about that. Like best case scenario for Bibi is, you know, he ekes out some power sharing, rotating agreement. Mm -hmm. We are (laughs) we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We don't quite know how far away it is. But that is a seismic shift, uh, given how long this guy, you know, over a decade is Israeli prime minister. Um, and, And it does just go to show that the, the, the that Israel, uh, you know, is going to have a post-Netanyahu future. And, you know, frankly, coming on the heels of what we just talked about, Trudeau, you know, we've talked on this podcast before, like, is the pendulum beginning to swing here against mm-hmm. these guys, against mm-hmm. these kind of far-right leaders and nationalists? And I, and I think there is something to the fact that you have Trudeau eking out a win, even with the tough circumstances he faced, and then Netanyahu having trouble hanging on. It does feel like a pendulum is swinging. Yeah. And, you know, in a recent episode when we talked about this, I sort of, I made the point that Benny Gantz, when it comes to the Middle East peace process, is not the progressive hero that we all want, right? He's probably not as committed to the Middle East peace process or to a Palestinian state as most progressives in America would want him to be. And then I maybe poo-pooed the difference. And I heard from some, uh, some friends who said, actually, that kind of under- explains or, or underappreciates the degree to which Bibi Netanyahu has has permeated and poisoned the public discourse in Israel yeah. with fear-mongering, with like allowing the hard right to dictate the terms of debates, with undercutting institutions, undercutting a free press. So, you know, it's look yeah. as everyone listens probably knows, I dislike Bibi Netanyahu yeah. enormously, no but uh, I thought it was an interesting point. Yeah, well, and I, and I think what that points to is that, look, are all the problems in Israel going to be solved if Benny Gantz becomes prime minister? No. Is the Palestinian issue going to be dealt with uh, quickly? No. But in order to get there, they do need to just kind of get beyond Bibi. <laughs> like, step one is yeah. this guy who's kind of bulldozed pol- politics to the right demonized the left and the center, made all kinds of alliances with some odious characters, become more and more strident and racist in how he talks about mm-hmm. Arabs. Like, you need to get past that. And just so you know, and we're not corrupt. seeing... Yeah, and, and the corruption and the media. And just so you know, we're not singling out Israel here. Like, it's kind of what like what has happened here, you know? Yeah. Like, all our problems won't be solved when Trump leaves. Um, it's certainly not the problems of the Republican Party, but it's definitely a necessary step. Yeah. Um, quick reminder that uh, we are doing a live Pod Save the World taping yes. on Saturday, October 26th at J Street's National Conference in Washington, D.C. If you want to come see it, visit jstreet.org slash conference. Use the code PODSAVE for discounted tickets. Those proceeds go to J Street, so you'd be helping out a great organization that's fighting for more progressive policies and peace, uh, and it should be fun. Yeah, just a terrific organization. And for people who don't follow us closely, you know, you've traditionally had APAC as kind of the leading organization 
you know, casting itself as pro-Israel. J Street emerges an alternative that's pro-Israel and pro-peace. It's a progressive organization. It supports diplomacy. It supports the Palestinian state. We all, as progressives, have an interest, I think, in supporting J Street and making it kind of the home for Democrats who care about these issues, given how APAC has basically worked against Democrats, um, certainly against President Obama, um, and, and very supportive of President Trump. Yeah. Let's talk about China for a bit. Uh, Last week, the Trump administration announced that they're going to require Chinese officials in the U.S. to notify the State Department before meeting with local or state governments or American teachers and researchers. I thought this was an interesting announcement. Uh, the State Department said these rules were reciprocal for similar rules imposed by the Chinese government uh, on U.S. diplomats in China that are even more onerous. You actually have to get Chinese government sign off to have those meetings uh, when you're serving in, in China. So the U.S. ambassador to China, Terry Branstad, did an interview with the Washington Post where he, I thought, provided an interesting window into just how difficult it is to be a U.S. diplomat in a place like China. So Branstad talked about an event at a school that was canceled at the last minute because the administration said the kids were, quote, too shy to meet with U.S. officials. And then there was a time that he, the ambassador, tried to drop by a coffee shop and just sort of informally chat with people. But Chinese officials raced ahead of him and told the patrons not to speak to him and just like shut it all down. So you could probably make a case that even reciprocal restrictions like this are ultimately self-defeating in the long term, and we're just going to cut off any kind of meaningful uh, relationships or exchanges. But I thought it was an interesting window into the surveillance and harassment that our diplomats face in places like China or Russia. And, and it's an interesting piece of that broader discussion we've been having about China trying to define what freedom of speech means, yeah. even in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. You know, uh, when we negotiated the reestablishment of diplomatic relations with Cuba, um, we went through this with them. Uh, they wanted to impose all kinds of restrictions on where U.S. diplomats could travel and huh. who they could see. And it was kind of a fascinating window for me into how this works because it's actually not entirely uncommon in, in some of these kind mm -hmm. of one-party or communist states. Um, you know, we ended up negotiating that certain U.S. officials could kind of go wherever they want and see wherever they wanted, you know, like the ambassador. Um, but, the, you know, there, there just were some restrictions that they put on people and that they did to other countries, too, when we talked to them. Um, obviously, then this got overtaken after we left by this yeah. this sonic attack thing, which we should come back to at some point on this podcast. Cause yeah. I'd love to know what they've happens. No, they've never solved it, and there's increasing doubt about whether something happened or what scale it happened. But anyway, I think what this – so this is – this shows you – I mean, I'd say, first of all, this doesn't suggest to me that the Chinese are particularly – kind of confident, right? I mean, we, we keep hearing about, you know, this the inexorable rise of China and how they may have figured out this alternative system where everybody signed on to a, this one-party state. And there's no doubt that the Chinese Communist Party does enjoy a lot of popular support. But what are they so afraid of? You know, like what, what are they afraid the, the people in the coffee shop are going to say to the yeah. ambassador? What are they so afraid? How's your Tuesday? Yeah, I mean, Enjoying like, that latte? What, what yeah, like I, I, to me, it just shows a, a remarkable vulnerability or lack of confidence that you just you don't even think that the yeah, U.S. diplomat can show up at a school because something might go horribly wrong. I mean, um, mm -hmm. in terms of how we respond, yeah, I'm not sure that the best way is reciprocal. This, too, we went through in government when there was some trouble for – U.S. reporters getting visas in, in China, we looked at proposals to yank the visas of a lot of the Chinese state media and ultimately decided that 
well, if we're for open media and free media, we shouldn't do that. That that's not the best best way to reciprocate. Yeah, there they probably other, win that one long. Yeah, time. they you know, and and so I I think look, we need to stand for our diplomats, and there are other levers we can pull and other ways we can apply pressure. I think when we start going tit for tat like this, the history of it has not been that good in resolving the circumstance. If anything, it almost gives the Chinese a justification to kind of keep doing what they're doing and yep. maybe do it worse. So, uh, I'm sympathetic that this is a tough problem, um, but I'm not sure that this is the way to solve it. Yeah, I feel for these diplomats. It's, it's a tough gig. Uh, talk about Facebook. So on Monday, they announced that they had found and taken down four state-backed disinformation campaigns, three of which originated in Iran and one was from Russia. So these posts were on uh, Facebook and Instagram. They targeted people in the U.S., North Africa, and Latin America. Uh, the information was disclosed as part of a press call that Facebook did to demonstrate that they're actively working to find and pull down these disinformation campaigns, which are so similar to the ones waged by Russia during the 2016 election. So they're just trying to show that they're on it. Um, the focus of the posts from the, from the Iranians and the Russians seem to be to just sow chaos and conflict, uh, which probably makes sense. They're in the early phase where they're trying to you know, assimilate into groups, drive engagement, get followers. So they're doing a lot of reposting of like garbage right-wing organizations like TPUSA. Um, Interestingly, also, uh, Facebook announced that they're going to start labeling state-sponsored media pages like Russia Today as state-sponsored. So that's important and long overdue. So, Ben, we're talking about like 200 accounts, but it's still a step in the right direction. I'm glad to see that they've got a big team and a budget on it. Some people online, some experts pointed out that it's a bit odd to fight this international disinformation campaign, but not submit paid political ads to any sort of fact-checking process. Seems like a, a bigger problem, but you know. Credit to them. I'm glad they're finding these things. Well, yes. Uh, but <laughs> count me as a skeptic here. Yes, yes. Because, uh, like, one of the things that they've always said is, oh, we can't possibly do this. It's an open platform. Like, no, you can do it. You know? And and they're... Because I've always thought, like, at a minimum, what they could do is label something like this, right? Mm-hmm. That This is state-sponsored. I mean, you could pull it down or you could inform people, like, this is from an unverified source or this is from a state-sponsored uh, you know, account uh, or source. Um, and, and so, again, I, it's a positive step. It's a step in the right direction. Unfortunately for them, it kind of indicates that they could be doing even more, you know, to try to identify the source of, of a lot of content on their platform. And again, yes, if you're saying that you don't allow foreign governments to engage in disinformation, why is it okay for the President of the United States to buy ads on your platform that are outright disinformation, mm-hmm. outright lies, and then be able to count on Mark Zuckerberg to give a speech defending you, you know, lauding free expression, right? So, you know, it's a, a caveated welcome of this step. I think another point that we have to be mindful of, though, is we, we can't count on the government to regulate this. We can't count on Facebook to do as much as it necessarily should. We should count on ourselves to be more tuned to the fact that if information you're reading comes from a shady source, look, it's not that hard to go into my Twitter notifications and tell what's a bot, you know. And one of the things that I think you saw in some of the analyses of the Russian disinformation in 16 and this time is that they try to sow divisions in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So in 2016, they, they spent a lot of time and effort trying to turn Bernie supporters off Hillary and, by, you know, take advantage of social movements like the Black Lives Matter yeah, movement. And they did that again this round. Yeah, they're doing that again this round. So you know what? 
maybe let's not all fight each other on the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. You know, like like the, the 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 best antibody that there is to disinformation is people just not consuming it. I'm um, with you there, but I think that will require uh, taking the computers away from the baby boomers. Yeah, yeah. You know who I'm yeah. talking about. Not all of you. Yeah. Just the bad ones. You know, it, it, you're right. It, like, there's a much bigger problem here, but I'm glad, you know, they're using whatever. I'm glad that they, have. well, no, and I'm glad that they feel pressure. I yeah, mean, yeah, look, me for, Facebook doesn't do this out of altruism. Um, they they respond to some public pressure. And I think the pressure that Elizabeth Warren and others have put on them is making them take some of these steps. And we should keep this drumbeat up. Yeah. The right does this. So Steve Bannon pressure the hell out of Facebook in 2016. Yep. And Mar- Mark yep. Zuckerberg met with all these right wing pundits to promise them that that they'd be treated fairly. Never mind that most of the content on Facebook, the top content is right wing. We should be doing the same thing. Yeah. We should be working the refs. Uh, I love you, baby boomers. Don't send me mean Facebook messages because I'm under 40 and I don't go on that shit. Uh, let's talk about Haiti for a minute. So there are some truly dire reports uh, about the ongoing political crisis in Haiti. Opposition leaders in Haiti are calling for the removal of President Jovenel Moïse, who, uh, and they have led to violent demonstrations and a basic total a total shutdown, essentially, of government services. There is a great New York Times piece uh, on Haiti today that leads with an anecdote from the small hospital that is down to just one day supply of oxygen. So these caregivers are choosing to give it to either newborns or like older patients recovering from strokes. Haiti has dealt with on and off political dysfunction for a long time. And they also had just a devastating earthquake in 2010. But folks on the ground say this is the worst it's ever been. 30 people have died in the past few weeks. Schools have been closed since early September. Hospitals are closing. They're running out of gas. The government just literally isn't functioning. So I'm not sure what, if any, role the U.S. could or should play in helping stabilize the situation. But, you know, it's just this is our neighborhood I think the lawmakers, citizens are naive to think that the U.S. won't be impacted in some way by this kind of political instability. And just on a human level, I think we should care. So I just wanted to, to yeah. raise awareness. No, well, we'd be impacted, you know, by people trying to, to migrate here, obviously. Yeah. And, but, I mean, we should care. It's our neighborhood. You know, in the past, there's been this kind of just chronic dysfunction in Haiti Couple was just the worst luck in the world, you know, Truly. like that earthquake that uh, killed hundreds of thousands of people and leveled the infrastructure. Um, what's worked somewhat in the past, obviously not enough, is really the U.S. needs to work with a lot of other countries, countries in the Americas in particular. We've worked with Brazil in the past mm-hmm. and others to try to provide assistance, try to provide some infrastructure that can help people. Tragically, some of that aid effort has been corrupted yep. and siphoned off, uh, but we shouldn't lose sight of this and we shouldn't stop trying because uh, people's lives are, are at stake. And, and we should try to do this cooperatively with other countries. And, and this is something I think Democratic candidates can talk about is like, how do we have a more sustainable and effective uh, aid approach to Haiti? The last thing I'd say, Tommy, if people are interested um, in how history has informed where Haiti got and basically the extent to which Haiti was completely screwed because it was founded by the only successful slave rebellion in history. Uh, There's a great podcast. uh, It's the Revolutions podcast, which goes through different revolutions. And they have one long series on the Haitian Revolution that explains both how slaves were successful in throwing off uh, their colonial masters, but also how the U.S. and other countries iced them out because of that mm-hmm. and set them back at a great disadvantage. It's by a guy named Mike Duncan. So you can check that out if you want, mm-hmm. if you want to go deep. I definitely will. Yeah. Um, th- let's talk about another big protest movement that's happening and not really getting that much attention, which is in Lebanon. 
So an estimated 1.5 million people have protested over the last five or six days in Lebanon. Uh, It started as a protest over a proposed tax hike on WhatsApp phone calls. But it's, you know, uh, it's gotten bigger. It's about corruption. It's about a government that isn't delivering basic services. It's about a corrupt business elite, which is frankly, you know, sometimes the same as the people in government. Um, Unlike in Hong Kong, the government moved quickly to pass economic reforms to try and satisfy the protesters. But so far, it doesn't seem like they're buying it. It seems like it's emboldened them. Uh, Prime Minister Saad Hariri is, you know, not the strongest leader to begin with. So, Ben, I mean, I I don't know what's going to happen here. Uh, but the images are incredibly compelling. It reminds me of the very beginning of the Arab Spring in places like Egypt. I think a lot of uh, Middle East watchers have worried that something like this might happen in Lebanon, that Lebanon might be a tinderbox for a yeah. long time. Uh, the tone and tenor are positive so far. Let's hope it remains that way. But it's something we should really watch. Yeah, and I think you know part of this of what this is a symptom of that's unique to Lebanon is you know, ordinary people there feel, I think, at times like there are all these machinations happening above them, right? So you have this wealthy kind of Beirut elite that's connected to a lot of the money that swashes around the Middle East. You've got Iran backing Hezbollah. You've got the Saudis, remember, who took Hariri hostage. Yeah, they literally and, took him hostage. Yeah, you know, and, and, and so there's there's all these kind of power brokers making these moves over their heads. Then there are also an enormous amount of Syrian refugees there, hmm. and they're just kind of left out of their own politics. Um, and I think this is a part an expression of that frustration with you know, corruption, inequality, and a non-responsive political elite that Hariri is now trying to address. I think the other point which you reference, though, is that like everybody thinks that the story of the Arab Spring is over. Like yeah, there no. were these you know revolutions in 2011, then there was a counter-revolution, and the counter-revolution won. But, man, we've sat on this podcast and talked about Algeria, Sudan. about Sudan, uh, about Lebanon. There were protests in Egypt. Mm-hmm. I don't think the story's over. Nope. I think that, that there's a lid on a powder keg right now, and it's going to keep blowing in one place after another if these governments don't get ahead of the frustration that people have, chiefly with corruption, frankly, yeah. even more so than, like, a lack of free expression. And, you know, I, there's going to there's there's going to be more protest and there's going to be more instability unless governments become more responsive. Yeah. Uh, last topic before we get to Susan Rice is Afghanistan. So first is some news. So the commander of U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan announced on Monday that the U.S. has reduced the number of troops in Afghanistan by 2,000. Uh, basically what happened is when we rotated troops out, we didn't replace them. So that means that there are about 12,000 U.S. service members now in Afghanistan. Uh, the the deal that had been negotiated with the Taliban but got blown up by Trump via tweet because he wanted a Camp David meeting with them as madness around 9-11, um, that would have involved reducing the number of troops in Afghanistan to 8,600. So it's interesting and maybe very dumb that we gave up that leverage. And it's also just interesting to me that the administration somehow secretly cut troop levels without Congress or the press noticing. I just, I just don't get how that works, but whatever, I, I'm for troops coming home. But I also just want to flag... Um, a long piece on Afghanistan in the New Yorker this week because everyone should read it. It's truly incredible reporting and it is just completely devastating to read because the piece really does a good job of focusing on the Afghan people and how much 19 years of conflict have hurt them. So here's some relevant uh, points from the piece. So 
Bush announced we're going into Afghanistan in October of 2001. In 2003, Don Rumsfeld, then Secretary of Defense, announced that the mission had moved from major combat activity to a period of stability, right? Since that time, since that announcement, 150,000 people have been killed in Afghanistan. 750,000 Americans have served there. And we have spent, the U.S. has spent $800 billion in the country on military operations and assistance and everything else. So, you know, Afghanistan also hasn't been in the news much lately, in part because what happens with these wars, when the troop numbers come down and when the mission changes to advising and assisting, U.S. casualties drop. And we are all grateful that we all thank God for that. But, you know, it means there's less coverage. But, you know, the war has actually gotten worse for the Afghan people. So between July and October, the UN documented more civilian casualties than it has during any three-month period since it started keeping count in 2009. And last month, the U.S. dropped more bombs on Afghanistan than at any point since 2010. So the thing I think people have to understand is Trump made this big song and dance about loosening the rules of engagement. And that has led to way more casualties. Remember when we dropped the mother of all bombs? No one has any idea who was killed by that fucking monstrous bomb. And so meanwhile, the Taliban is growing in size. Some militants in Afghanistan are now pledging support to ISIS in various parts of the country. So that's leading to even, you know, once ISIS is there, it is another horror that the Afghan people have to deal with. But it also could lead to more justification for relatively indiscriminate attacks on those ISIS fighters by coalition or Afghan forces. So it is really worth reading the whole piece because uh, it's just brilliant reporting, but man, it's a devastating read. Yeah. You know, the Trump piece of this is, you and I were texting about this, but there's this kind of discordance where, you know, the people around him are kind of traditional, you know, Republican advisors like Zal Khalilzad, the envoy, saying, you know, our true presence is leverage on the Taliban. But the Taliban, everybody else knows that Trump just kind of wants to get out, mm-hmm. you know, or he just kind of wants to bomb people indiscriminately with the Air Force and pull troops out. And, and that kind of undercuts any coherent diplomacy, which leads to the next point, which is that it's very important. I'm glad you highlighted this article. We don't look at this from the perspective of the Afghan people enough. Yeah, you know, we never. just think about our troop levels, or we think about you know money. the money that we spend there. The Afghan people have been at war for like forty years. It's not just since nine eleven. Like, remember the the Soviets were in there, and they, that was a war. And then there was a civil war. The Taliban won, and then relatively shortly after that was nine eleven. So, any I'm forty one years old. Like anyone my age in Afghanistan doesn't really remember like there not being a war. And that's that's a horrifying thing. And, and I, what they need is not indiscriminate bombing. I mean, it has eerie echoes of Nixon getting out of Southeast Asia and just carpet bombing like yeah. Vietnam on the way out to send some message to somebody, uh, you know, we're tough or something. Um, what we need is really effective diplomacy that, you know, brings the Pakistanis into this, like stop what you're doing, messing around here, mucking around here, supporting the Taliban in this fashion, brings the Chinese in because they have all kinds of interests in Afghanistan, which kind of cuts through their Belt Road Initiative, brings in the Europeans who've been donors, thinks about what our long-term assistance plan is. I mean, we really owe it to the Afghan people to have a much more concerted, high-level, sustained kind of diplomatic initiative to, to... to try to have some impact on the warring parties inside of Afghanistan and some kind of long-term stabilizing impact on the central government in Kabul. Um, 
and I think we really should be informed in those efforts by, you know, the Afghan people and 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 what what is most important to them in terms of assistance and who are the key players that they see mucking around their politics. But um, it is just a window into this this real real tragedy of. You know, how did this go so wrong after 9-11? Yeah. And look, I mean, I don't bring, raise this piece to blame Trump because it made, no, this me, is, it made me think yeah. of do some soul searching. I blame Trump for the like, just we're going to bomb the place. Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. But, but this long story is a story of like a lot of American yeah, mistakes. Look, I mean, there's eight years of, of Obama overseeing the war in Afghanistan, including a, a huge surge and buildup that I don't think by any measure achieved the goals we hoped it would. Right. I mean, we got bin Laden. There was some a lot of progress against Al Qaeda. But, you know, when viewed by the Afghan people. But the, the, like some of the other tragic parts of this is, you know, they were on the cusp of having negotiated this peace agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban, and then the U.S. would have withdrawn forces and the Taliban would have negotiated something maybe with the Afghan government, and Trump just pulled the plug on it. And, you know, before that uh, negotiation had been finalized or announced, there was actually a three-day ceasefire. And they talked about how there was just people were rejoicing yeah. all across Afghanistan. You know, you had Taliban and government officials and police like hugging each other yeah, in villages. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, it just, it un- I'm not saying that pulling out would make everyone happy and hug each other, but it just speaks to the way that this war has become a perpetuating yeah. machine. And like you said, if you're a 17-year-old kid and your dad was killed by the Russian foreign invaders and the people in your village yeah. say you now need to go fight these new ones, like that's all you've ever known. Yeah. And, and you know, and look, the um, the history of this will, will, is interesting to think about. You know, the initial decision to go in Afghanistan in the first place had a lot of support, obviously. I, I think most analysts say that, you know, Bush's decision to essentially kind of stop in 2002 and turn his attention to Iraq mm-hmm. um, was the critical error, you know, that there, there might have been a window there um, where things felt like they were moving the right direction and we kind of got distracted, didn't resource it, focused on Iraq for a bunch of years. Things kind of went from bad to worse in Afghanistan. Obama comes in, surges. You know, I'm sure we had mistakes along the way. Certainly, you know, the the thing, though, that began to trouble me was this fundamental question of is our military presence making it better? I, 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 people can certainly make the argument that our military presence is necessary to train Afghan security forces and to prevent the Taliban from taking over the government. But at the same time, it, it fed a lot of corruption, like the, the kind of corrupted the entire economy to be this kind of war economy uh, where people are siphoning off aid money in Afghan politics and U.S. contractors have their own levels of corruption. And uh, you do just wonder how can we figure out a way to to somewhat clean the slate a little bit. And and I think that is, you know, it should be viewed uh, more as a diplomatic challenge at this point than a military challenge, because militarily, we seem to be unable to do anything except perpetuate a stalemate. Yeah. Uh, quick update. Uh, since we started recording, the European Council President Donald Tusk said he will uh, recommend that the EU grant Britain's request for a Brexit delay. So breaking news in the time we've been talking. Uh, anyway, go read this piece in The New Yorker by Luke Mogelson. Uh, it's fantastic. And when we come back, we'll have our conversation with former National Security Advisor and Ambassador Susan Rice. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. 
It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop Chef Quality Pots and Pans at MadeInCookware.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Ben and I are honored to have our guest here today, Ambassador Susan Rice. She's Obama's former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. She was the National Security Advisor, and she is the author of a fantastic new book called Tough Love. Everyone who's listening is going to buy it. Susan, great to have you here. And she's my boss. Well, Both of our come bosses. Come on, man. Yeah, yeah, Both of our bosses, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's great to be with you guys. B- before we really get going into the, the wonky stuff, I just want to I want to read you something in the book that I found kind of troubling. Um, it was a description of one Ben Rhodes who you said yeah. uh, he's, <laughs> he has dangerous tandem moves on the dance floor. What, what I don't was, think dangerous was a compliment. What, what, what's that all about? What's dangerous about Ben's dance moves? <laughs> he flips people over his back. Oh, That's you true. do? And I he's do. really strong at it and he's not that tall. So, yeah. you know, it, people can go flying. Yeah, all right, this well. actually happened in the <laughs> executive office building of the White House. And again in Lima. <laughs> and in Lima, Peru. Yeah, this is what qualified as scandal in the Obama. Uh, uh, as one does. People. <laughs> Flipping the smaller people in the NSC. Okay, as one does in Lima. Okay, let's transition. This is an interesting transition. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We so, should talk about that night in Lima. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. By all means. Uh, well, let's just say that, uh, actually, I began my book uh, with the fact that I had no socks the next day. Hmm. Because let's just say, you know, you have a bad call. We have, you know, what year was this? This is the final farm final trip, trip, right? So, like, we blew it out the last night. And the Pisco Sours, I think. Tons of Pisco Sours rented out. There's a lot of sugar involved. Let's just say I wasn't feeling that good. (laughs) But what Susan is going to remember better than me is I did not make it to the summit meetings the next morning. No. I didn't have to be there. Like, there's usually just a plus one in these multilateral summits. Susan did not have that option. I had to be there. So when she saw me kind of waltzing in unshaven halfway through the day, with no socks because I had packed all my socks in the bag that was sent to Air Force One because I wasn't thinking straight. And she gave me, like, daggers, you know, <laughs> for the fact that she'd been sitting in a multilateral summit for several hours while I'd been sleeping it off. Right. So we, we were out dancing really late, and it was the party to end all Obama administration parties. That's we good. took over the DJ, too. We took over the— Took over everything. Yeah. So yeah. This, this is post-Trump winning exactly. last trip. And so we're just blowing off steam. And— I was out at least till 3, 3.30 in the morning, yes. but knowing I had to get back up early yeah. to join Obama. So I, you know, drink, party, get out of bed the next morning, and my 
knees buckled as I got out of the bed. That's the level. Of I almost hit on. the floor. And I realized it's not. This is not about being hungover. Right. It's about my knees are fucked yes. up. Oh no! <laughs> the physical <laughs> so, activity. I mean, the dancing is taking place during like when the Charlie Fromstein iPhone takeover happened with still Dre. <laughs> uh, like like people were on tables. It was like you know, it was a lot of scene to blow off. Eight so years worth. The, the opener of the book. <laughs> we're going to get to serious stuff in yeah. a minute, dear listener. But like the opener of the book. No matter how many times I hear from one of you guys or read about the description of those last 12 or 24 hours in the White House as they're literally boxing up Obama's stuff or ripping up the rug in the Oval, it is like, it's still hard for me to get through. I mean, I can't imagine what it was like for you. We had champagne in in the outer Oval Office in the morning of inauguration, right? Yeah. So, you know, Ben and I were, we must have been really the last two people on the NSC staff who had to be there on that last morning. And I walked in and, you know, saw Ben right away, gave him a big hug, and we walked down to the Oval where we met up with Anita, yeah. who was carrying a bottle, of, yeah. a, a bottle of champagne. And Ferial was overseeing these guys who were, you know, literally ripping up the Oval Office and mm-hmm. tearing down the curtains and putting up Trump gold and all this stuff. And um, Anita popped the bottle of champagne and we, we sat outside the Oval Drinking champagne, as ironic as that was, on mm-hmm. the morning of Inauguration Day. My God. And, the, you know, we were, as I say in the book, we were drinking to each other. We were drinking to our friendship and what we had been able to do together. And uh, I think kind of praying that it wouldn't be quite as bad as yeah. it appeared it would be. It was a bit of a metaphor looking out at the, you know, because the Oval was literally kind of gutted. And they're putting up the Trump gold, as Susan says. And I remember looking out at the Rose Garden and all the furniture is like out. I mean, it looks like somebody moving, right? The couch is out there and stuff. But the rug that Obama had had been rolled up and Mm -hmm. the rug had quotes on it. And one of the quotes was Martin Luther King, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And you could see that, you know, just picture a rolled up rug, you know, tied up. And then you can see the quote from Martin Luther King as Donald Trump is moving in, I just remember having a bit of a moment there. You know? Depressing. It was so depressing. It was depressing. Uh, one other transition thing before we get to the actual work you guys did. You, I, you write in the book that you spent 12 hours briefing Trump's incoming, very short-lived national security advisor, General Flynn, and it ended with him asking you for a hug, which was not what I expected. It wasn't in the briefing memo. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you guys didn't, like, Susan, you didn't just hand over the keys to the kingdom to General Flynn. Like, you had to do all these briefings and all this hard work for one of the harshest surrogates on the Trump campaign. What was that like? It was just bizarre. So these 12 hours occurred over four different meetings. And, you know, Obama really wanted us to yeah. affect a very comprehensive and responsible transition because whoever was going to be his successor, because he was so grateful for the mm-hmm. very professional transition that President Bush had provided to, to him and to us. And so we'd written, you know, 100 briefing papers. I'd read and edited every one. Well, you know, we were really committed to doing our best, despite the fact that it was going to be Trump rather than Clinton. And then when we got back from this trip from Lima and on the trip, it, you know, Flynn had been named National Security Advisor. First thing I did was to try to call him and say, look, I'm here for you. Let's get together. Mm-hmm. I've got all this briefing material for you. Let's meet. Yeah, he and was, he was evasive. He didn't want to come in. He's with Sergei Kislyak. Like exactly. Like, voicemail. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he met Kislyak before Susan. Oh, my like, God. When all these timelines came out. Come on. One of the things that came out is that he had been in contact with no. the Russian ambassador before his, his predecessor. So he finally, like two weeks later, comes into the office. And, you know, th- he's the locker up guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was actually kind of subdued and 
clearly daunted by the job he was going to take. And he didn't want any policy advice from me, but he wanted really to understand, you know, how do you do this job? And so rather than being, you know, blustery or obnoxious, he was kind of timid in a way. Interesting. And not, you know, and civil. But and, but his policy views, as I write in the book, were just, you know, crazy. Yeah. But anyway, so we had several more of these meetings, including one which I write about where his deputy designate came, K.T. McFarlane, who <laughs> was, I think, a coffee fetcher in the Reagan administration and then a Fox News personality. Yes. Yes. And also only there for like a hot minute. You well, know. she was yeah. there longer than Flynn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's true. That's true. <laughs> but anyway, she comes waltzing into the West Wing and into the Situation Room wearing a full-length mink coat, hmm. <laughs> which in the Obama White House really stood out. Didn't yeah. Notice, yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anyway, um, and she asked in the early, in her first meeting when with Flynn and me and my deputy, Avril Haynes, do you think that Flynn and I could manage this by job sharing like he can work in the the first half of the morning and i'll come in in the afternoon come on i swear to god and avril and i looked at them like <laughs> do you understand We've that these are the hardest jobs in government <laughs> been working like, 20 hour days you know it was whack oh. anyway so we go through all this and at the end of our last meeting you know i extend my hand to shake it shake his and to wish him well and he says can i have a hug i was like thinking to myself <laughs> I feel awkward for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but I said, you know, I said, sure. all right. So I gave him a hug and wished him well, and that was literally the last I've seen him, except on TV as he's been, you know, doing the perp walk oh thing. My gosh, I mean, the, <laughs> the book is worth reading for the transition stuff alone because it is—it's the best part of our democracy, right? The fact yeah. that we have this peaceful transition, but it's so fucking weird, it's and you surreal. walk us through it, and it's just a blast to read. But all right, let's talk about some of the the issues you worked on as national security advisor. So I saw recently that you called Trump's decision to abandon the Kurds in northeastern Syria batshit crazy. And I thought that was very concise and well put. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, batshit crazy is like the status quo, right? right? So I'm curious what you think, like stepping back, what the long-term consequences are of a decision like that? I think they're really immeasurably large. First of all, the Kurds fought with us actually fought for us to defeat ISIS. And of course, ISIS is never quite defeated. They were mm -hmm. put on the run and into a box. And the reality is that for a very small investment of U.S. personnel, barely more than a thousand still in Syria now on their way out, we were able to support the Kurds and their Arab partners with advice, with training, with assistance and equipment. And that was sufficient with our air power right. to keep ISIS under control. And that was a, you know, a theory of how to fight the terrorists that developed in the Obama administration right. after the, you know, the very costly, deadly ground wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so by throwing the Kurds under the bus who lost 11,000 of their fighters, men and women, against ISIS, we did several things simultaneously. One, we sold out these people who had been so important to us, who counted on us to protect them. And we gave the, the message to every ally that we have or partner around the world that if Donald Trump wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, they're toast. And so, you know, we're not going to be able to fight terrorism economically again, because who's going to trust that they should partner with us? Mm -hmm. You know, whether you're Israel or South Korea yeah. or Poland, you got to be freaked out by this. Big time. So that's one. Two, ISIS now has no pressure on it. And, you know, there are more than 10,000 ISIS prisoners. 
who are already beginning to escape and filter back. Sleeper cells are being reactivated. They've already been a couple of ISIS-conducted attacks. So this very dangerous terrorist threat that we invested so much in trying to contain with you know almost 70 other countries is now being able to reconstitute itself. So <laughs> when you think about you know all of the horrible things Donald Trump has done to undermine our national security, I think this has got to be up there. Yeah. And then finally, it's been Merry Christmas for Vladimir Putin, the Iranians, and Assad, in addition to the Turks. Now they get to control this territory. Mm-hmm. We're retreating with our tail between our legs. It's now Trump Saigon. And it couldn't be more dangerous or destructive to perceptions of our leadership, our constancy, our ability to to play a major role on the global stage. But he said the ceasefire is the deal of the century. Everyone's been fighting for it. The ceasefire was handing the Turks on a silver platter the Kurdish homeland. Yeah. It just doubled down on the sellout and put our Made in America stamp right on it. Well, I wouldn't ask you about this because, you know, I remember having to sit in a lot of meetings that you chaired, we call them principles committee meetings, back when there used to be kind of a national (laughs) process, um, about the specific question where the Turks were getting nervous and objecting to our arming of the Kurds, and the Turks were putting forward versions of what Trump just agreed to, which is essentially let us come in and take over this territory, create our own version of a safe zone. And I remember sitting and looking at maps of northern and eastern Syria, places like Mambij, where we were separating out. Here's where we don't want the Turks to come because it would threaten the Kurds. I mean, I wonder if you could just kind of talk our listeners a bit through how we handled this diplomacy with the Turks to make clear to them that, you know, they had to accept that we were going to work with Kurds and Syrian Arabs, you know, a, a kind of diverse set of partners, but the Kurds were a part of that, and how we had to kind of keep them at bay because what was kind of jarring and almost chilling to me is seeing Trump announce as a deal yeah. what was essentially the Turkish negotiating position in all those conversations. For five about, years. You know. No, it's outrageous. So it's obviously the case that the Turks have long hated this faction of Kurds, the YPG. Yeah. They're not the same as the PKK, the the hardcore Kurdish mm-hmm. terrorists inside of Turkey, but they have a relationship, and so the Turks have equated them. We dealt with the reality that you know Turkey was not only incapable of fighting ISIS, which if they could have done, we might have chosen them as a partner, but they were in fact facilitating ISIS's expansion by allowing all these terrorists to pass through Turkish territory unimpeded into Syria. Mm -hmm. So they were really on the wrong side of this issue. And more interested in the Kurds than ISIS. Absolutely more interested in the Kurds. Not really interested in ISIS at all. So when the reality struck that, you know, the Kurds were going to lose this town Kobani up on the the border, President Obama made the decision that we were going to use force to protect the Kurds and save Kobani from ISIS. The Turks were doing nothing but bitch and moan. And we managed under President Obama uh, for the duration of our tenure and actually, you know, through much of Trump's tenure thus far to keep the Turks at bay by basically saying, look, we'll listen to your concerns. We'll understand that there are ways we can approach like how to occupy Manbij after it's liberated from ISIS that may be more attentive to your concerns. But you're not helping us fight ISIS. These people are. And that's our top priority. And it should be your top priority as a NATO partner. Mm -hmm. So President Obama spent hours and hours and hours in meetings and on the phone with Erdogan, assuring him, massaging him, keeping him on side. And, of course, our military presence on the ground was itself a deterrent. Uh, You know, the Turks are 
obnoxious, but they're not crazy. <laughs> and they would not have tried to intervene militarily if they thought they were going to kill American servicemen and women. Right. And so we had that, you know, firewall there that was our presence. And what Trump did, and we really got to figure out why. I want to come back to yeah, his I motivations. Yeah, I agree. But what Trump did was remove that firewall in the form of our military personnel and give Erdogan the green light. Had he held firm, I'm willing to bet, you know, a lot of money that the Turks would not have, you know, affected that intervention. Do you agree, Ben? Yeah, 100%. I mean, because, you know, they, they've had the same objective for years now. Uh, the only thing that changed... Literally, the only thing that changed was that phone call from Erdogan to Trump uh, and then Trump's signal in that White House statement that we would support a Turkish intervention. And, and you got to wonder what in God's name was Trump thinking he was getting out of this deal. He doesn't do anything for free. There, and no. there's nothing for U.S. interests. That's the, the, the point. The, the United States gains nothing. So no, it's Trump worse. Gain? It harms our interests yeah, yeah. very substantially. Russia, yeah. Iran benefit, ISIS benefits. So what did he get? Yeah. I, I got to like figure that out. This feels yeah. like it's going to be a, a part of this future impeachment inquiry because it all seems kind of tight, especially with Rudy Giuliani running around lobbying to, you know, unsanctioned banks and, right. you know, get uh, a Turkish cleric named Gulen sent from the United States to Turkey. So there's a lot of weird on stuff. By the way, Trump's own financial interests. Yeah. In that also goes yeah. back to Flynn, too. Yes. Remember, yeah. Flynn had this, he was working for the Turks. Yep. We yeah. didn't fully appreciate that when during the time of the transition, but we, we had hints of it. Yeah. And, under Flynn's leadership, the new Trump administration did not want, you know, to start the offensive against ISIS that we were prepared to launch against, you know, uh, their outposts in northern Syria. And it, they were worried about offending the Turks. Yeah. There's something in this that goes back as far as that. Yeah. That we need to understand and unpack. It yeah. doesn't add up. No, it doesn't. And it's not about our interests. So... The worst case scenario happened, and it happened incredibly quickly. Congress is now lobbying for sanctions. It feels like it's too little too late, but do, is there anything we can do to mitigate the damage or that our allies could be doing? You know, the Germans are cutting off weapons sales. A bunch of EU foreign ministers are condemning what's happening, but I, I wonder what will At this point, happen. after the you know this stupid five-day pause, yeah. which I hope saves some lives, but basically, as I said, sells out the Kurds in their homeland and a large swath of northern Syria to a hostile invading force from Turkey. I don't know what we can do. I mean, had we not had Pence go and, you know, bless this with his holy water, mm -hmm. what we could have conceivably done, even though it would have been very late and dangerous at this stage, would be to try to reestablish our deterrence on the ground by making clear we're not going to, you know, we're not going to pull out. We're going to we're going to maintain positions or retake positions, but right. we lost that momentum when the when the Russians and the Syrians came from the south, yeah. as well as the Turks from the north. So we've just screwed the pooch here in you know ways that I think are really irretrievable. So we know that General Mattis back in 2018, uh, along with Brett McGurk, resigned over the first iteration of this Syria policy, which then got walked back, and then President Trump implemented it. Uh, General Mattis has pretty steadfastly refused to this day, to criticize President Trump or his policies. He has not afforded that courtesy same courtesy to, to his other, Trump's to, predecessors. To Obama, yes. but yeah, but Who that's okay. Served, yeah. yeah, but so at the Al Smith dinner that was in New York on uh, on Thursday of last week, uh, he finally broke the silence by joking that Trump also said, Meryl Streep is overrated, so that makes him the Meryl Streep of generals. I'm curious what you both think of the fact that, you know, then he said that he had a bone spurs joke, I believe. And like, you know, I get it. Al Smith dinner is a comedy dinner in New York. It's sort of this long establishment 
you know, white tails, black tie, ridiculous event. But wouldn't you think that you would step out and criticize the former president for allowing an ally to get slaughtered before you would return fire at a joke about being overrated yeah, or something? I mean, I'm, I have to say I'm really disappointed and I don't understand his logic in Mattis's refusal to just speak the truth. He doesn't have to you know, attack the president of the United States, but he does need, especially if he's writing a book on leadership, to own his responsibility as a leader. When he made the transition from uniform to a civilian appointee, mm-hmm. a political appointee, he made a deliberate choice. And he's not like any other you know, four-star uh, flag officer who retired straight out of the military and never played a political role. A cabinet secretary is inherently a political role. Right. And he's refusing to articulate what I believe he must think about what has transpired. And in doing so or failing to do so, I think he's really doing a disservice because the American people have a right to understand, particularly as we we're peeling back the onion and realizing how so much of what Trump does internationally is about himself. Mm-hmm. It's not about America first. It's yeah. about me first. Right. And Mattis and others like McMaster and Tillerson and you know, many who have left are in a position to shed light on that. And I believe they have an obligation to do so, but they may not. Yeah. And, I, you know, it gets back to what you were saying about the motivation because it's also the fact that Mattis clearly knows some stuff that would be really important for the American people to know, right? So we talk about, well, the curiosity of why the Trump yeah. administration has kind of had this strange interest in Turkish interests, you know, whether it was the return of Gulen or Rudy Giuliani trying to get, you know, uh, someone who was on the hook for Iran sanctions violations cleared, you know, or, or what explains this curious impulse that Trump continues to have to allow the Turks to come in and massacre our allies. Mattis must have been in rooms that gave him some indication of why that was happening. Yeah. He, he has information from his own experience that is very relevant to these questions of why are American interests being sold out? And what Mattis has done thus far is hide behind this kind of opaque resignation letter where he said nothing other than like, I support allies and wink, wink, this guy doesn't. Well, why don't you tell us what you know about why this person is selling out American interests and selling out American allies? Same thing, Tillerson, in this kind of now somewhat famous appearance with Bob Schieffer, made this joke where he's like, yeah, there are a lot of times when the president asked me to do things that are against the law. Well, tell us, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, like it, you know, these guys are joking about it. Mattis is cashing in on like a corporate speaking tour about leadership and sitting on the knowledge of potential crimes or corrupt activities by the president. Like, if you really are putting country first, like, let us let us know this information. It's, so it's not just that I, I think they should be criticizing Trump. More importantly, they should be telling Congress or the American people what they know about the potential corruption of our foreign policy. I agree. And when does the statute of limitations run out? Because clearly it's run out on Obama, so that must be <laughs> yeah. three years, right? Yeah. Oh, that ran, no, it ran out pretty quick. Bill <laughs> yeah. Mattis was so, giving speeches uh, against the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah. You know, uh, it's a bit subjective. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. You think it's a moving target, maybe? Yeah, it's a moving target. Okay, so, Susan, you were in the Clinton administration before working for Obama, and we want to talk in much more detail about some of the policies that happened in Africa, both in your time in the NSC and in the State Department. But, I mean, you also had the backdrop of an impeachment proceeding going on, right, for some of that time. Are there any big lessons you took away from 
how to manage impeachment besides like, hey, don't send your chief of staff to the podium to confirm <laughs> all the details. <laughs> like that seems like a good lesson. But like, <laughs> like here's if there's anything you observed or learned over time, or if you're any thoughts on what an impeachment proceeding does to U.S. credibility around the world when you're trying to negotiate with other countries and they're seeing all the shit going on back in Washington. Well, I think it's really hard to draw analogies, right? Because in the Clinton years, it was purportedly about personal conduct. Yep. And now it's about selling out the national interests of the United States. And that's a very different thing. And how it plays internationally, I think, is a very different thing. In the Clinton administration, where I served in, when impeachment was going on, I was at the State Department right. rather than the White House. You know, what was striking was how committed everybody was to continuing the business of governing and to not allow what was happening on the impeachment front to infuse and infect everything else that had to get done. And so there was a very small team of people that from the White House in, in the legal counsel's office who were dealing with this. The rest of us were doing our jobs. Mm-hmm. And the President Clinton was still trying to do his job. Yeah. Because Trump equates himself with the state and, you know, sees no difference and is a narcissist, everything will grind to a halt in service of his insanity of the day as he continues to spiral downward as a result of this impeachment inquiry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there will be no governing done responsibly in service of our national interests. If, yeah. if it's done at all, it'll be the kind of thing that Bill Barr's doing, trying to run around the world, you know, trying to make our allies cough up bogus dirt that doesn't exist to create a narrative that they can use against their political opponents. Yeah. One more sort of newsy one before we do the a longer Africa discussion. So you obviously, <laughs> both of you, spent a million hours in meetings about Iran, passing the Iran nuclear deal, whatever it was. A couple of weeks ago, all of us were pretty worried about the potential of a conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Or the U.S. and Iran. Or the U.S. and Iran. And things seem to have cooled off a bit, but the underlying tensions are obviously still there. We now have 1,800 more U.S. service members deployed to Saudi Arabia to work a bunch of equipment that we sold them that they can't figure out how to fucking turn on, I guess. <laughs> so like, we got 14,000 more U.S. servicemen and women in the Gulf since May. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah, and and then we're worse. removing people from the Middle East. It's yeah, about ending our Middle East commitment. Yeah. So how worried are you about tensions escalating between the Saudis and, and Iran. And what do you think Trump can do to, to calm this down? Well, I think I'm, I'm very worried about that part of the world and tensions escalating. And I, I don't know that anything is de-escalated. I just think we're just not paying attention and Trump's not, you know, throwing fuel on the fire every day because he's fueling other fires. But I think there's a real risk that between Yemen, the flow of, of commerce and everything else, through the uh, the Persian Gulf, you know the tit for tat between Iran and Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. Israel stirring the pot, that things could spiral out of control. And I think as Trump finds himself under more pressure domestically, he may try to to look for a distraction or manufacture you know something that reinforces and rallies his base. Mm-hmm. And you know Iran is a good target for that. Yeah. And the, you know the, on the nuclear issue, Tommy, the, the Iranians recently made some indication that the next phase of their kind of protest of the U.S. pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal by taking their own steps could include kicking inspectors out of certain sites. Yes. Which, we, you know, it's I've said deal. before in this podcast, that's a big deal. You yeah. know, like the, the reaccumulation of stockpile is a big deal, but it's, you know, an incremental move meant to signal their displeasure. I've always thought that 
putting back centrifuges and kicking out inspectors is when this becomes a really big deal and could trigger a U.S. or an Israeli-type response, potentially militarily. But it also just shows the failure of their policy, right? So (laughs) they pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement, and they said that their, quote-unquote, maximum pressure campaign would, you know, force the Iranians to capitulate further concessions on the nuclear program and would rein in, check, you know, roll back Iranian influence. Yeah, it's in going region. perfectly. The opposite has happened. Oh, okay. Iran is restarting their nuclear program, potentially kicking out inspectors. We just gave the one part of Syria that wasn't under control of Assad and his Iranian allies to Assad and his Iranian allies. Iran is just is more belligerent towards Saudi Arabia, as you saw mm-hmm. in that attack, either by the Iranians or their proxies on Saudi oil infrastructure. So it bears attention and you know doesn't yeah. get attention amidst all, everything else that's going on. Just a complete failure Total of failure. this quote unquote maximum pressure campaign against Iran yeah. because they they blow up everything Obama does with no plan B. Yeah, absolutely no plan B. It's um, not yeah. a great way to run a government. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. So it's but don't ju- worry, Rudy Giuliani's on. Yeah, it. Rudy's yeah. got yeah. us. Yeah. Send, send, send Rudy to Iran. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, Susan, it's July of 1998. You're sitting in a meeting in Nigeria with some State Department colleagues. It's you guys and a top opposition leader named Mashoud Abiola. Yes. Did I get it right? So the meeting- Imprisoned opposition leader. Imprisoned opposition leader. The meeting's going on. I'm sure you're just having a conversation. He starts to sweat. He starts to cough. Ultimately, he passes out. He has a heart attack. He dies. In our meeting. In your meeting. In effect. You had moments earlier handed him a cup of tea. At at which I asked if he wanted because he was coughing so vigorously. And the men are sitting there, you know, not knowing whether to call a doctor, whether to turn on the air conditioning. They didn't know what to do. It's helpless. So I did offer him some tea, which he thanked me for. He took a couple sips. And then, you know, to this day... There are people in Nigeria and newspapers that write that I killed Abiola by feeding him poison tea. So, so take us, you write about this extensively in the book, and it's an incredible chapter. But what was it like to be sitting there and to knowing that conspiracies can whip up quickly? I wasn't thinking about conspiracies. Were you when terrified? <laughs> well, no. I, would, I mean, first of all, it was a weird thing because he came into the meeting robust. Right. And, you know, he's joking with Tom Pickering, who had been ambassador to Nigeria, and they were backslapping and talking about, you know, the good old days. He sits down on the couch and he starts telling us about, you know, how he's been poorly treated in prison. Mm. And we're in a government guest house where I guess he's been removed from solitary confinement and brought to visit us. And I notice at the meeting begins that because he's wearing sandals and traditional Nigerian costume that his ankles were and feet were very swollen. But I didn't make much of that as you know he was talking. And then he starts to cough and it gets worse and it gets worse and he starts sweating and it, you know, it, it was horrible. And what was striking to me was nobody was reacting as if we had a health emergency on our hands. I told his minder to call a doctor. You know, I thought, you know, th- this was clearly not a mild coughing spell. This was yeah. turning into something worse. And so I was worried that he was going to, you know, that something serious was going to happen. I hadn't, you know, as this was unfolding, I didn't expect that he'd actually die in, you know, a few minutes later in no. the the very ugly rudimentary Nigerian presidential hospital. Right. But he did. And then, you know, that's when it got crazy because the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to Nigeria, frankly, started freaking out. And 
tried to tell me and Tom Pickering as a visiting delegation we had to leave the country as if we had something to hide. No. And we're like, hell no. And we had to call back to Washington, explain what had happened, dictate a statement for the White House to release. We had to inform the acting president of Nigeria what had happened. And then we had to go tell Abiola's wives and daughters, plural, what had happened. And so I'm going there with Pickering and, and the U.S. ambassador. We get in with the wives. And How many wives are we talking about? Like three or four, yeah. roughly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was overwhelmed by the wailing. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I kind of yeah, yeah, lost yeah, yeah. count. Yeah, but the imagine. wailing was just so piercing. And you were 32, 33 years old? Yeah, I'm 32. Well, you were the youngest assistant secretary of state in history, right? Mm, regional assistant regional. secretary, which That's is how we got yeah. into another problem with Holbrook. We'll come back <laughs> <Yeah>. to that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so they're wailing, and I turn around, and I realize that the men had just left me oh my God. in there by myself. They, you know, and so we're just, I'm trying to clean up all these different things, that, that help the wives, tell them, you know, what had happened, advise the Nigerian acting president with Pickering, who was very, you know, responsible and measured to order an international autopsy, just sort of all these things. And then we had to talk to the Nigerian press. I had to write the cable explaining this for history. Mm-hmm. It's like one of the handful of few cables I actually wrote at that senior level. And then I'm watching, <laughs> then I'm watching television in the embassy as I'm writing this cable and it's CNN and they're reporting on what had just happened in right. Nigeria. And Jesse Jackson Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was at that point President Clinton's special representative for the promotion of democracy in Africa, okay. is on TV speculating about how it was possible that U.S. officials you know, were in a meeting when this man died and maybe we did something to kill him. Oh I'm boy. like, what the <laughs> oh boy. fuck? What are yeah, you doing, yeah, man? Yeah. So I tell my assistant, call his assistant and get him off the stage. Yeah. Get yeah. him off the off the set because he doesn't know what he's talking about. And I, you know, I have a great relationship with Jesse Jackson. I think he's, you know, good man. He did a good job in that role. But they, for that minute when he was, you know, speculating on yeah, international television about this was just so not helpful. So it was a crazy day. I can't even imagine. I, I thought that the Africa section of the book was fascinating to me. This uh, this period of time. You know, where there's huge changes happening. You know, Nelson Mandela is, is on the scene. All these African countries at these different transformative moments. You know, one of the things we talked about last week uh, on the podcast was the Prime Minister of Ethiopia winning the Nobel Peace Prize, well-deserved, in part for his efforts to finally try to end and resolve this. To implement uh, the, the, the agreement that we reached in 2000. Well, exa- wow. Yeah, the Finally implement Eritrea. So I, I, with that as kind of backdrop, I thought, you know, that... Can you just describe what this war between Ethiopia and Eritrea was all about, what you tried to do, and why it's significant, you know, here we are 20 years later, that, that this prime minister is finally trying to, to, to bring it to an end? Well, in 1998, two neighbors, Ethiopia and Eritrea, that had been quite close uh, following the achievement of Eritrean independence earlier in the 90s, and the leaders had been quite close, had a very abrupt and irreparable falling out. And Eritrean military forces, after what we believe was a border skirmish, moved in to occupy territory that had been administered for a long time by Ethiopia. But their border had never been delineated and demarcated, so nobody really knew exactly Mm -hmm. who it belonged to. But the point was, it was being administered and, and controlled by Ethiopia, and Eritrea using force to take it back was a breach of international law. 
But that really wasn't the point. The point was there was this deep-seated animosity that emerged between the two leaders. And the, what began as a border skirmish escalated into a, a massive border war with cities being bombed and airports being bombed. And it evolved into a World War I-style trench war in which up to 100,000 servicemen on both sides were killed wow. in a brutal... That's massive. And it was, it was the worst interstate conflict in the world at the time. And the United States early on, because we had productive relationships with both countries and both leaders, stepped in to try to help mediate with an African partner, first Rwanda and later the African Union through the Algerians. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as a tandem team, uh, the U.S. and the African negotiators worked for the better part of two years uh, to try to bring that conflict to an end. President Clinton was involved. Secretary Albright was involved. But the team that did the the bulk of the work on the day-to-day basis was led by former National Security Advisor Tony Lake, Gail Smith, our friend yeah, and colleague. Friend. A lot of Gail in this book. A lot of Gail in the world. Gail's a hero. Yeah. She's a hero in this yeah. book, literally hero. in some scenes. I mean, including in the plane where someone got sick, but we can come we'll back come to back that. Yeah, we'll come back to that. And John Prendergast and I were really the yep. team that did the day-to-day negotiations, especially Tony and John. And we finally, after all these fits and starts, in December 2000, agreed, got them to agree to a ceasefire, a peacekeeping operation to separate them, and a plan to demarcate in the border. Mm-hmm. But the ceasefire was implemented. The fighting stopped. But for almost 20 years, the peace agreement was never implemented. And you know, blame belongs on both sides, but mm-hmm. arguably more on the Ethiopian side for failing to implement the agreement. And so there was a situation of no war, no peace. And so when the new prime minister, uh, Abi came in, you know, one of the first decisions he made, which was quite bold, was to try to reach out to Eritrea and begin a process of normalization and implementing the agreement. And, you know, and he also released a bunch of political prisoners and took a bunch of reform steps that mm-hmm. were overdue in Ethiopia. Meanwhile, Eritrea continues to be led by the same leader who is essentially a dictator. And, you know, he he still has 20 years later, young people in army camps that can't leave. And so there, there are a whole bunch of issues still in both countries that need to be resolved. But what the prime minister of Ethiopia did was jumpstart a process to, to begin to implement the peace, which was so important. Yeah. So in the book, you write about how, you know, you were working on the in the NSC and the National Security Council handling African affairs. And then you got offered this job to be the assistant secretary of state as the youngest regional assistant secretary ever. You almost rejected the job in the meeting because you were two months pregnant and hadn't even told your own mother yet. But right. had to tell like Tony Lake and Madeline Albright. <laughs> Sandy Burgers, hey, Sandy Madeline. Burgers, sorry. I'm pregnant. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, exactly who you want to break the news to, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, you know, you, you get confirmed for this job. And a lot of the coolest parts of the book are just the unbelievable trips you took early on. I mean, Ben alluded to one story yeah. earlier that's a little less fun where, you know, vomiting on yourself on a flight to Namibia and having Gail Smith have to hose you down at an yeah. airport Literally that's hosed. less cool. Literally yeah. hose you yeah. down in the desert. Yeah. But like, yeah, the, but, you know, the presidential level trips are the coolest things in the world, but they're also notoriously brutal. And I, my jaw dropped when I read that you took Bill Clinton on. A I did t- not take him on. You, but, yeah, you, you did. big <laughs> you, you capital Y. You took Bill Clinton on a six stops. 12 day, six nation tour, Ghana, Uganda, Rwanda, South 
South Africa, Botswana, and Senegal. Were they fucking crazy? They were fucking crazy. Yeah. I mean, it was originally five stops, and then I advocated to add Rwanda. So nice. that made it safe. Nice. But it, can you imagine if we'd done that we, to Obama? Obama would have killed us by day, <laughs> country four, day nine, we would have been but dead. you guys also so took we members of Congress? That. Yeah. Like, we took half of Congress yeah. and the entire cabinet and, you know, the, a huge traveling press corps because there'd never been ever a big official presidential trip to Africa. Bill yeah. Clinton's was the first. Was it? That's so telling that, you know, it took that long, you know, that, I mean, yeah. well, yours that 1998. Eight. Eight. You know, that's not that long ago. No, and it was and it was an incredible trip. I mean, you know, the greeting he received in Ghana, which of, as many of your listeners will know, was the first African country to achieve independence, was unlike a greeting I've ever seen anywhere even bigger than yeah. Obama in Kenya. Really? It was just... What was the scene? It was just every inch of every mile from the airport to Independence Square, Black Star Square in, in Ghana, in Accra, was thick with people, you know, 20, 30 feet deep on either side. Wow. With, you know, banners and music, and it was just the most extraordinary welcome. And then this in the square... It, it got so thick that Secret Service really was freaking out because, you know, barriers mm -hmm. were crushing down and stuff like this. Not because anybody was hostile, but just because there was a crush to welcome, you know, the president of the United States. That's it was so cool. amazing. Yeah. How do you – you saw Nelson Mandela. Uh, I always wondered when we went on the Obama administration to the Mandela Memorial Service. Um, oh, yeah. Which is one of the most powerful things, you know, I was ever remember being a part of. You met him as a young woman, uh, young several times. You know, public servant. How did you look at those bookends of like seeing Mandela at kind of his peak? You know, he's he's just been elected. You know, he's just president. been president. Uh, he's still very much the man that everybody mm -hmm. wants to see. And then being there, you know, twenty years later at his memorial, like when you were on that flight with Obama, flying uh, as we were <laughs> staying up writing the speech. Were you thinking back on those experiences you had with him in government? And what, what stands out in your experiences with Mandela? Well, Mandela was a fascinating character. He, on the one hand, you know, he was this huge historical figure who'd sacrificed, you know, 27 years of his life on Robben Island. And I got to visit Robben Island with President Clinton and the delegation as Mandela showed us around his cells and wow. took us out yeah. to wow. see the quarry where he had to labor when he was incarcerated and where he lost a portion of his eyesight because of the, the glare on the, of the sun on the, the rocks in the quarry. Um, and, you know, he could be a very gentle, you know, very soft-spoken guy, but he also had a temper. Oh. And he had a, a streak in him that could be quite stubborn, yeah. which makes sense if you're going to yeah, survive yeah. that kind right. of yeah. experience. And so there were issues even the early days between the United States and South Africa that were very difficult to resolve um, from, you know, a, a lingering case over arm, called Arms Corps over, you know, the apartheid government, you know, selling U.S. Uh, equipment to places that they shouldn't that got in the way of our ability to cooperate militarily. Mandela and the new South African government were initially very opposed to the African Growth and Opportunity Act. They thought somehow it was some plot to colonize Africa economically. Mm. Wow. And, you know, you had Deputy President Thabo Mbeki, who er early on was spinning conspiracy theories about HIV AIDS yeah. and its origins. So it was actually, a s and, and the other thing was that um, Mandela was quite close to Gaddafi. 
mm-hmm. and you know was always trying to get the United States and 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 Gaddafi and to yeah. to reconcile. Yeah. Um, and so he was a he was brilliant. He was passionate. He was principled, um, but he wasn't always easy. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. truthfully, and yeah. I mean, a lot of people won't say that out loud, yeah. but you know, this is my experience. Right. And uh, so the funeral, you know, was that we went to together with President Obama was, you know, an opportunity to pay tribute to all that Mandela contributed, not just to South Africa, but to the world. Uh, and it was deeply moving, but it was also the most, one of the most bizarre trips we ever took. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, between the complete breakdown of security at the stadium. Yeah. And I write in the book about, you know, how Obama's in a stadium where nobody has been magged, being put through, it's you know, crazy. security screening. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of people in the, one of the highest crime countries in the world, and he's there on stage with no flag jacket. Wow. And, you know, Secret Service is tripping. And then there's this crazy interpreter, sign language interpreter, who wasn't actually a sign language yeah. interpreter. Turns out, to be a, turns, <laughs> turns out to be an imposter yeah. standing Forgot right near that. the president. Oh. Yeah. And then there's the famous selfie. Yeah, it was that the, the dumbest controversy in history. Yeah. Right, yeah. With yeah. The, which the, the prime minister of Denmark yeah. took with the president, and her sin was to be attractive. So yeah. it was right. just a crazy right. thing that all overshadowed what was a phenomenal speech that Obama gave. Yeah. Uh, so let, that must have pissed you off. Then. Oh, I bet. No end. And, and then the Castro hand- about this. In the Castro handshake. Yeah, yeah. Let's go from uh, one of the most inspiring uh, human beings in in recent history to uh, a really shitty topic of Benghazi mm. to, to, for a minute. So I want to separate this into pieces, right? Because there's Benghazi, the incident that happened, uh, the terrorist a, attack, a horrific terrorist attack that tragically killed Chris Stevens, Sean Smith, Glenn Doherty, and Tyrone Woods, right? And there was, I think, uh, a pretty well-documented series of investigations into what happened that day. Uh, Eight investigations by Congress. Yes, but a lack of security. You know, there are a lot of things that I think, you know, were important and real and deserved reckoning, right? No one here worked on any of those things, right? You were at the United Nations at the time. We were in the White House. We just, none of us did security. Then there's hashtag Benghazi which is the right-wing fever dream, uh, the swampy soup of bullshit cooked up by Fox News that decided to make you the target of all their attacks, all their animosity, all their cruelty. And reading this book again, it was really, it was hard. It was hard to read those chapters. Hard for me having been feeling like, one, uh, we were all there in this too, but you like it was hard for us watching you in the barrel as much as you were in the barrel. We were in the barrel too, right? All of us trying to like deal with this bullshit, but like you were attacked so personally, and also knowing that you felt like you were not sufficiently supported by the White House team. Like the only person who was getting your back on a regular basis for a while was Barack Obama, and like I just think I don't know. It, it's Benghazi, hashtag Benghazi is a parable about the madness that we're now seeing all day, every right. day from the yeah. Trump administration. Yeah, and this is why it's important cru- to read because yeah. you have to understand Benghazi to understand Trump. Right, yeah. because Lindsey Graham isn't just a piece of shit now. He's Lindsey, been a piece of shit. Lindsey yeah. Graham. I said it. I said it. Yeah. Damn yeah. it. Finally. Yeah. He was, he's a piece of shit. Yeah. He's lying, <laughs> lying, 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 and raising money off of the death of four Americans. Yeah. So anyway, that's my little speech. It was, it was just... It made me so infuriated well, to read it. Well, and I guess the other, I mean, one way to enter this conversation, too, is is one of the things that's interesting in your book is, okay, so, you know, I was the guy who called you, right? 
and said, I mean, I still remember this, like, Jen Paul Murray calls me into the press secretary's office, like, hey, we really need someone out on the Sunday shows, right? And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It's like, why? Know? We're dealing, <laughs> the world is on fire. You know, like, literally, there's, because of this video, like, I'll say that, you know, there the are protests. Innocence of Muslim videos. There are violent, yeah. anti-Muslim video. There are violent protests. There's not just Benghazi's happened. They're all over the Muslim world. And we're all super busy. And they're like, well, but it looks like the world is on fire and we need somebody out there to kind of give a steady message. And also... Bibi Netanyahu, who's booking himself on Sunday shows, preparing to attack our Iran policy. So we we anticipated that we were going to have to deal with that. So I said, OK, well, I'll, I'll reach out to Hillary. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that didn't happen. Um, but but and, let's because let, we've talked about this. We haven't talked about it yeah. much depth. So you called me first after you had already reached out to Hillary. Yeah. And you said we've asked Secretary Clinton if she'll go on the shows. Yeah. We haven't heard back yet. But in case she won't. Would you be willing to do it? And that was the like, first call. It's like yeah. four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And it's on like Friday. Friday. It's yeah, Friday. So it's close to the day. It's Friday. And that Friday is the day that everything is burning in the Middle East because Friday prayers right. are the days that people protest. And so literally Tommy and I have a, a split screen on in our office that shows like there are people torching a Hardee's in Lebanon, black flags raised over our embassy in Tunisia where people were killed. Um, the, the, the perimeter of our embassy being breached in Khartoum. I mean, it is yeah, mass scary. chaos. Really so scary. I say to you why, you know, when you call me back a couple hours later and said, Hillary said, no, you know, would you do it? I said, well, what is, why did she say no? And you said, well, you know, I think they're... She's tired. Or, yeah, yeah I mean, tired. I, I, it's been a yeah, rough week. Yeah. What I should have asked was, did you ask Donalyn? So I did. Um, so uh, the national I, security advisor. Yeah, I kind of, but I knowing you know, look, Tom is a great guy. It, it, like his favorite thing to do wasn't necessarily to be. He hated doing press in front of the cameras and, and interviews. So I remember he hated doing going, TV interviews. I going into his office it, it, and beginning he doesn't seem to so reluctant his, now. Yeah. <laughs> well, none of them are now. It's it's very weird seeing John Brennan do an hour of one p.m. <laughs> cable true. on look, MSNBC. Actually, this, you know what? Thank you for saying that because I'm gonna get a little thing off my chest too, which is like I because I always said <laughs> to go out on the worst stuff, you know. And, you know, it's like, oh, we need someone to talk about Syria. Like, Ben, can you do these, like, five cable hits, you know? And but all these guys are now, like, Brennan and I Donilon know. and, you know. I feel uh, like we're, we're, we're a little down the rabbit hole. But, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's yeah. just talk about this, though. So, yeah. like, but this is something that is uniquely our conversation. Uh, yeah. so, so, Tom says no. Please, so then, so then you, you said to me, um, okay, I'll do this if you do my prep is what I remember, right? And so I think what's important for people to get is, to us, this is like because the reason it's important to say this is to the right to the hashtag Benghazi. We then set about between Friday evening and Sunday morning a scheme cre- creating an entire conspiracy theory. You know, right. like literally, if you if you to try to understand what what Lindsey Graham and Mike Pompeo and all these these lunatics like think it said we invented this the video didn't even exist and we invented it and we somehow got the entire u.s government to agree to be a part of this conspiracy theory and we somehow orchestrated the cia writing talking points and when in fact what happened is we asked the cia hey can you give us the latest points on what you think happened and they were doing that anyway for congress Uh, so they sent that to you i took our press guidance which is what jay carney the white house press secretary used like Pulled, on other issues, into, on other issues, on other issues, dropped it into a memo, sent it to you. I remember we did one phone call 
on like a Saturday afternoon where we went through After these questions. After my football game at Ohio State. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember I was in the parking lot of a, of a liquor store. I was in the airport at Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. I mean, this is, so this is not. my a, kids running around wondering what the <laughs> yeah. hell I'm doing So we were very phone. focused so a, on the conspiracy. The is, yeah. This is, and the reason it's worth reading this part of the, of the, the book, and these are not like, the, we were going about our lives dealing with all kinds of stuff, multitasking 10 things at a time. And just having to deal with the fact that you have to go on these Sunday shows, you above all, and and yet that has become like a creation story of some yeah. conspiracy theory. Well, my mother was right. That's the moral yeah. of the story. Listen she to your was. mother. Because after you called me and I said, you know, reluctantly, I was taking my kids to Ohio State yeah. uh, for this football game. But, you know, if nobody else will do it and you're asking me to do it as the White House, I'll do it. And my thinking was, you know, we're a team. We had a really bad week. I've been asked to play a role. I thought I could play it, and I agreed to do it. So I get to my mother's house, who just had her fourth or fifth cancer surgery and was just coming off of a stroke. And she asked me, so what are you doing this weekend? I said, well, I'm taking the kids to Ohio State, and then I've agreed to, to go on all the Sunday shows. And she's like, what? Why? And I said, you know, I explained the whole thing of how you yeah. asked me. And she said, I smell a rat. Where's Hillary? Why are you doing this? <laughs> I was like, come on, Mom. Don't be ridiculous. I've done mother. this before. Yeah, it'll be fine. And, of course, it wasn't. So, no. yes, always listen to your mother. Yeah. But she had the intuition that I suspect uh, others had, uh, however tired or bad weeks they'd had, that, you know, whoever's going to be out in the middle of a political campaign or any other hot crisis and is trying to provide the best current information, which inevitably will change, mm -hmm. is going to be targeted. Right. And, and not just for the message, but the messenger, him or herself. And that's what happened to me. And my mom perceived a risk that I didn't fully perceive because I wasn't thinking about myself. Right. Yeah. You're, so th one of the hardest things to read was after you left the White House, you had a friend who worked for Fox and you asked that individual, I mean, so much of this Benghazi nonsense was cooked up in Fox News. In, in, in hindsight, it's even more insane to me that people yeah. listen to Sean Hannity <laughs> and let him create a narrative yeah. given that he lives in an alternative universe. But this <laughs> Fox producer told you when you asked, how did I, Susan Rice, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., know oversight role over the embassy or the consulate in, in Benghazi or embassy security generally? How did I become the villain? And he said, individuals make great villains. Right. Did how, how did you receive that information? Well, it was really it was fascinating. Yeah, you know, to have an inside perspective on how Fox operates. So he was even more, you know, forthcoming than that. He said, you know, look, Fox has this very deep bond with its viewers, mm -hmm. and it knows how to energize and rile up it, its viewers. And making them angry is how they get ratings. And a way to make them angry is to create villains that they can target, and you know and vilify and you always need fresh villains and you know the, the he explained how the original fox villain was in fact bill clinton hmm. and then barney frank and some others and you know we were sort of yeah, was, new was, iterations yeah, as a jv villain and yeah. and hillary of course became a major fox villain yeah but uh i had given them all the wherewithal he explained to be villainized because i'd given them five different sets of video on these shows right. and they could loop them and they could turn me into a new villain. And now on Fox, many years later, they just need to say my name. And it's like, you know, like people start twitching. It's, <laughs> it's like an automatic, you know, yeah. trigger point. So 
it was fascinating to learn from that person's point of view how they engage their viewers. And now you can see it playing out. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, Trump is the master of it. Yeah. He makes people angry every day. How, how cool is it to see Mike Pompeo and Trey Gowdy, two of the most vicious, aggressive Benghazi conspiracy theorists who demanded oversight all day, every day, now helping Trump cover up his crimes? It's really rich. Yeah. Pompeo in particular. Uh, it's a- yeah, Pompeo in particular. One of the things, so you write about in this book, one of the things I was fascinated by was you kind of grew up in this Washington that no longer exists where, you know, people were friends across political persuasions and there was this kind of, you know, civility, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, You know, the caricature of you is this, you know, from Fox is you're this kind of... Hot-headed partisan. hot-headed, you know, partisan person when actually I always, you're very warm and and generous and you look out for the people around you, including me, even though I asked you to go on the Sunday shows. Um, you're my boy, boy. Uh, and, <laughs> but you've also, I've, I've noticed you've been able to work with people who uh, you disagree with very strongly. One of the more interesting things in your book in terms of characters and diplomacy is Churkin, the yeah. Russian ambassador of the United Nations. You know, you didn't. We didn't clash with Russia in the first term quite as hard as in the second term. Obviously, when you had Ukraine, and uh, but you know, they're they're still on the other side of most issues or a lot of issues at the UN. How did you? How do you set about building a relationship with uh, you know someone who's an adversary, but you have to make a partner on some things, and you have to be able to agree very you know very stridently, but still not have that you know, screw up a diplomatic relationship. What, just talk about that relationship you built with Churkin um, and, and, and how that was both personal and, and also allowed you to get things done. Well, by the time I got to the UN as ambassador, Churkin had been there five years already. And he was sort of a legend. Uh, he understood how the system worked. He knew all the tricks of the trade. He knew all the other ambassadors. He was uh, very smart and very charming and very combative. You know, he could be a complete asshole uh, or he could be you know, a fun person to hang out with on Saturday night. And <clears throat> I think what began between us when uh, I got there and realized that you know, I was either going to allow somebody like a Churkin to bully and intimidate me or I was going to uh, do as my father always taught me, which was not take crap off of anybody. <laughs> uh, you know, this was a classic case where I had to be assertive from the very beginning and let him know that I could give it back to him as well as he could dish it. And I wasn't going to be intimidated by, it, by him. And by the way, I could be as funny as he was too. And, you know, like there are two kinds of bullies, right? They're, they're the ones that are really insecure and find people who push back uh, that much more intimidating. I put Holbrook in that category. Yeah. And then there are the Churkins who actually say, okay, I get this. She's, she's, she and I are on the same page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I respect her. And, you know, and then it came to be, and I like her. We liked each other. We had a good personal relationship, even as we fought like cats and dogs. And even as, you know, I relate a story in there about how he um, tries to expel my son, Jake, from a security council in behind closed door <laughs> meeting where staff and other you know right. people can participate. Uh, and he was just sitting there listening because he loved just absorbed everything like a sponge at the UN when he ever he could get up there. And so finally Churkin tries to break up the meeting and saying, you know, we're, I'm not going to allow this young person to be in here. So we take it out into the hallway 
Jake's standing with me, and Turkin's yelling at me, going, why do you allow your child to watch Security Council debates? I'm like, why not? It's a learning experience. It's the international community. What's the problem? He goes, do you let your kid watch pornography? <laughs> I said, no. And he's like, well, why the hell do you let him watch the, these debates? Yeah. And I was like, okay. And so that was like, we were screaming at each other, red-faced. Um, and that was the way we fought. Yeah. You know, uh, but also then we could just, you know, he and his wife and, and, and me and my husband Ian go out for dinner and have a wonderful time and laugh and joke. So w- the point is that where you're dealing with people who are multifaceted as yeah. he is or was, sadly he's passed, um, you know, he's smart. He's working for his country. I'm working for my country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We got to get along and work together on some things. We're going to fight like cats and dogs on other things. But, you know, he's a human being. Yeah. Yeah. And taking the time to understand him as an individual and what animates him and, and moves him is how I think you, you, you have to deal with people that you're working with, whether you're they're, you're on the same side or the opposite side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And taking it back to what you said about my upbringing, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., born in the mid-60s, grew up in the 70s and 80s. Went to schools with children who were the the sons and daughters of the elite, people who were members of Congress and ambassadors and all of that stuff. But it was bipartisan. And my one of my very closest friends growing up was the daughter of a Republican senator from Tennessee. And you know, in in my cohort were the daughters or the and the sons of people who served in the Nixon administration and went to jail for Watergate. Hmm. And this was a time when members of Congress brought their families to Washington and lived there. People knew each other as human beings. And it's really hard to demonize and hate people when you actually know them as human beings. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And so that's what we've lost. And it's what I argue we really need to try to get back. Yeah. There's a ton more about your upbringing, your career in Tough Love, and it's a fantastic book, and everybody should check it out. I have no idea how we've almost been talking for an hour, but yeah, like we're it. like at our time. Someone asked you one last question, and we'll let you go. But um, in 2018, you toyed with the idea of running for the U.S. Senate uh, against Susan Collins in Maine, who, by the way, was particularly annoying during uh, the, the period of time been Benghazi to when you decided not to uh, be a candidate for the Secretary of State job. Um, you ended up not running, but I was hoping you could sort of tell us a little bit about why and what your thoughts are about, I don't know, any other future government service. Well, I impulsively uh, tweeted from the Phoenix airport as I was <laughs> about to get on a cross-country flight um, that I would, you know, some uh, Jen Psaki tweeted, who's going to run against Susan Collins? And somehow my fingers hit my iPhone and, and typed two letters, M-E. <laughs> and I really, I don't know what, it, you know, what made me do that, uh, except that I'd been watching Susan Collins on the television at, in the Phoenix airport uh, declare her vote for Brett Kavanaugh, which mm-hmm. was in a long list, I think, of betrayals of the people of Maine and the Uni- United States of America, her yeah. most egregious. Uh, and... I've long had family ties in Maine and I have a home in Maine and I love the state, but uh, I thought about it quite seriously because I forced myself to by having that impulsive moment. And I consulted with my family and I consulted with folks who knew Maine politics very well. And at the end of the day, um, I decided that this was not the time for me for very personal reasons. My daughter is a junior in high school. 
She's our last child at home. Our son is already in college. And I had spent eight years away from my kids. Yeah. You know, whether I was living in New York and they were in Washington when I was UN ambassador or when I was national security advisor and living under the same roof but seeing them very infrequently. I did not want to up either uproot my daughter and pull her out of high school at that critical point or leave her again. Yeah. Uh, and so at the end of the day, of, of all the thing, all the factors, that was the most important one and you know, causing me and my husband to agree that this was not the right time. Yeah. So future, I don't know. We'll see. Future, yeah. TBD. I like that. I, that leave us hanging. Well, this book, the book is amazing. The book's Susan. fantastic. I mean, you've always been just such a big personality with such immense experience and kind of caring about the right things for the country and having compassion for the people around you. And it's all in this book. I mean, yeah. the history of your family is like a, for me also was kind of a history of a certain African-American experience in this country, the history of your government service. You'll learn about Africa. You'll learn how the State Department works. You'll learn also what it's like to become a young mother, a woman in a man's field, unfortunately, although that's changing over time. And of course, our administration. So people should really check it out. Yeah. Uh, learn who Susan gave the middle finger. Learn yes. who the Furies are. Yeah. All kinds of uh, cliffhangers here at the end of this interview. It's a great book. Ambassador Susan Rice, wonderful to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you both. Appreciate you, Tommy and Ben. Thanks to Susan Rice for coming in. It was a lot of fun having her here. Yeah. Shout out Lindsey Graham. We're huge fans. Yeah. Uh, if you missed that excerpt of her choice words about Graham and Benghazi, that went out on Pod Save America on Monday. So check it out. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Pod Save the World is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nara Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share these interviews on video each week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.